going to be a little lighter this morning with fall break. Uh, I know we had a, a few less guys on Thursday, and I think several people are headed out of town. Um, but it is it is sweet to be together this morning. Thank you so much for being here on a Saturday morning and coming early to uh, be together and to look at God's word and and learn and grow. Let's uh, let's start our morning off with prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you. Uh, we thank you for this morning that you've given to us. It's a gift, and even to uh, make necessary adjustments and sacrifices to be here. Uh, we recognize that it, it, it's a gift to have the freedom and the ability to be together in this way, to look at your word, to encourage, to participate in things that are intended to glorify you and, and bless and encourage one another is, is truly a gift. And so, Lord, as we kind of jump in this morning, I pray that we would uh, have an alertness to us, even in the earliness of the morning, and that we would have a, an eagerness to have our our lives conformed uh, in accordance with your will for your glory. And Lord, especially as we look at what your word has to say regarding your church, which you love so much, uh, so much so that you would sacrifice your son um, for her. Lord, I pray that uh, what we would gain most is, is not knowledge apart from our hearts being impacted, but what we would gain most is a an affection for your church grounded in truth that is um, in keeping with your affection for your church. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, uh, you should have received the pack, the outline for this morning. Did everybody get that? Does anybody still need that? Okay, great. So you can um, put that in your binder as you're prepared. And what we're going to do this morning, we're going to be talking about the church. And But before we do that, we're going to spend a little bit of time on a couple things. First, just in regards to uh, God's word and thinking through caring for others, caring for our heart with God's word. If somebody were uh, trying to petition to you that man is good and that we don't, we don't sin naturally. That's something that comes as a result of our surroundings, surroundings or external influence or we're trained to that end. What passage might you go to to demonstrate that actually you, you, every believer or every person for that matter um, is dead in their sins at some point? Ephesians 2. Excellent. Yep, exactly. Ephesians 2. You could show them, well, God disagrees with you. Look at what, look at what it says in Ephesians 2, that you're dead in your transgressions and sins. Good. Excellent. What about if we were to try to help somebody be encouraged in their fight for sin? They're truly fighting, not for sin, against sin. Um, they're, they're fighting against sin. They're discouraged. Will this fight ever end? Will there ever be a day where I don't sin? Where I'm like Christ, perfectly holy, what might you point them to? Okay, yeah, he's faithful to complete. Good, Philippians 1.6, that's a good one. That wasn't the one in my notes, but, it's, <laughs> but that works. That's excellent. Yeah, I, I, was, I was thinking 1 John uh, 4, I'm sorry, 1 John 3, that when you see him, you'll be like him. 1 John 3, 2. Uh, to encourage uh, a believer who's fighting sin. Listen, there's, there's a day coming where you won't be fighting against sin any longer, but you will be holy. You'll see Christ and you'll be like him. But that day's not yet, and so stay in the fight. Uh, again, we go thinking through the new man worksheet that we talked to, the transformation of man worksheet. We're in this mixed condition and we're fighting now, but a day's coming for the believer when we will be in an unmixed condition, uh, holy, perfectly able to enjoy God and worship him free from sin. So, excellent. All right, let's look at our laminated sheet. And we're going to take a walk through our Old Testament. Should be this sheet with the key events of the Old Testament. And I recognize we, we kind of change gears a little bit here where we're going to start with a few minutes of working through this and then we're going to transition. And I know it's early to, to make quick agility, mental agility 
routines, but we're going we're gonna to do it anyway. All right, so we start with creation, roughly 6,000 B.C. There's the fall. Uh, several hundred years passes. Uh, I think it's close to 2,000, and we find that the heart of man was evil continually, and so God brought judgment on the earth through the flood. But he preserved Noah and his family through the flood. He tells them to multiply, be fruitful, multiply, and disperse and inhabit the land. So what did they do? They were fruitful, they multiplied, and they all gathered together and sought to make a name for themselves. What did God do in response? He created a dispersion through confounding, a dispersion through confounding their languages. And eventually you get to Abraham. And what time was Abraham? What time? Like, uh, not, like what year? 2166. Yep, 2166 BC. And he promises Abraham that he'll become a nation to bless all the, all the nations. In order to have a nation, you need what? Three ingredients. People, constitution, and land. Excellent. And so through God's divine providence, the um, Jacob and his sons are taken into captivity in Israel, or uh, in Israel, in Egypt. Um, over 400 years, they, they multiply exponentially, and they're brought out through the Exodus in 1446 BC through a series of 10 plagues. So sh you should be on that little lightning bolt with the 10 on it. That symbolizing 10 plagues. They cross the Red Sea. They are about 2 million, 2 million people at this point. And they have their people, the first ingredient. God leads them to Mount Sinai where Moses receives the law from God. And that law is to function as their constitution under a theocracy. A theocracy means that God is the ruler. So they are under God's rule at this point. They don't have a king. Okay, so they, they don't have a king. God is their king. They're a theocracy. They have their people, their constitution. However, as Moses is up receiving the law, the people decide to make a golden calf. They call it Yahweh. So they do what God has called them not to. They make an image of Yahweh himself, or, or they attempt to, rather. And in judgment over their rebellion and disobedience, uh, God causes them to delay for 40 years so that that generation would not enter into the promised land. Well, they end up in God's perfect timing, crossing the Jordan, entering the promised land, and God's instruction is to divide and conquer. And so they apply themselves to this, and now they have their land, and so they're a nation, the nation of Israel. However, they're told to occupy fully, but they fail to. They don't occupy the land fully. They make exceptions. They don't follow God's instruction completely. And so they enter into these cycles uh, during the times of the judges where they would experience sin, servitude, so they'd serve other nations, supplication, they'd seek God for help. God would provide salvation from their, their enslavement or servitude to other nations, and then there would be a period of silence. And those cycles, if you read the book of Judges, just keep taking place over and over again until it gets so bad among the Levitical priesthood that Eli and his sons are just totally corrupt. They had no king, no regard for the ark, no capital, no priesthood, no land. The Philistines had taken them over, no theocracy. And so what do they do? They cry out, we, we need a king. Our problem is we need a king like all the other nations. Give us a king. Then all of our troubles would go away. The problem is they wanted a king with the wrong heart. And so they choose for themselves Saul. Saul had no regard for the ark. He was disobedient to God and had a disregard for God's law. What did God do? He rose up a man with a heart after his own heart. Even in his sinfulness and, and rebellion, David still feared Yahweh. He, one of his first acts was to go, as king, was to go re-get, uh, find the ark and reestablish it in, in God's instruction. He was obedient to God, and this gave way to Solomon, who had a divided heart. God told him he would bring peace and prosperity to the land, but in so doing, he told him not to acquire three things predominantly. So don't go seeking out acquiring these three things. And those three things were what? 
horses, wives, and money, which is essentially tanks. Horses were uh, a staple for your military. Wives was uh, ways that you'd create uh, allegiance or um, what's the word with other nations? Alliances. Alliances. I couldn't remember that word on Thursday either. I need to write it down. Alliances uh, with other nations through intermarrying with with, uh, princesses and so forth. And then money is, is power. Money demonstrates their, their power and prestige, having money. So what does God do? He brings about a split of the nation where you've got Israel. This is in 931 BC. You've got Israel now splitting into two sections, two nations really for this time. And it's the northern tribes, which consist of 10 tribes, and the southern tribes, which consist of what two tribes? Judah and Benjamin. Judah and Benjamin make up Judah. So when you have Israel, the northern tribes, the ten tribes, I don't think I asked that question very clearly. So the northern tribes are the ten tribes, and then two tribes that broke off and became Judah were Judah and Benjamin. And then the rest make up the the northern tribes. In Israel, you had no good kings at this point. And they're taken into the Assyrian captivity in 722 BC. And that's really the end that we see for them up to this point. Judah, however, Benjamin and Judah, the tribes that consisted of Judah, had some good kings. And yet they still failed to obey God as he instructed. And so they're taken into the Babylonian captivity through a multitude of three phases starting in 605 BC. But God promises them a future And his promise that we see in Daniel 9 is that God is in control. He's not finished with them. He'll provide an atonement and there will be a future kingdom for the nation of Israel. Why did God bring them into exile? What was his purpose in bringing them into the Babylonian captivity? Well, threefold. Cure them from their idolatry. Israel was an idolatrous nation and being taken into captivity by Babylon, which was the pinnacle of idolatry. They had idols everywhere. It was so... Uh, in your face that it, it created a distaste in the, the um, Israelites, so the, the Judah. So, so post-722, when the northern tribes were taken into the Assyrian captivity, oftentimes Judah is referred to as Israel or the Israelites as well. So it, it, when you're reading the minor prophets, especially, it can get a little tricky, and it's helpful knowing what was the timing of which this was written, because there's some books where you'll get Israel, some books you'll have reference to Judah, some books you'll have reference to Israel, but it's speaking of Judah because of the time frame. So um, they're cured of their idolatry, they're given a respect for the law, and they're promised, a, they're given a hope for a Messiah that would come and restore the nation of Israel to its former glory. Why returning back to the land? What do they do? They're brought out of exile. They return back into the land to prepare for the Messiah. And this comes through a number of means, through establishing, reestablishing the temple, seeking to purify the people, have the people be holy again before the Lord, and the establishment of the city walls. Ezra was involved with the temple. Nehemiah was involved with the city uh, walls. And this leads way into Christ. So, all right. That's that. In future meetings, just to maybe prepare your hearts, we'll probably take five, five minutes and have you just split up into pairs and walk through it together. So just helping each other walk through those things, okay? So you have a couple weeks to uh, have an anxiety attack about, the, no, hopefully with just two of you, this is a safe zone, right? We love each other, help each other get through that. Okay. All right, to our outline for this morning. So you should be on Word, not Word of God. Discipline to the home, devotion, and then ecclesiology should be the page that you're on. Is everybody where we need to be? Okay. And if you want to open up your Bible to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Depending on the lesson 
and how the lesson relates to either discipline one, two, or three. So your heart, discipline one, your home, discipline two, ministry, discipline three, depending on how the lesson for any given week, how it relates to those, or maybe if it doesn't, we'll, t- we'll take a little bit of time to just have a discipline devotion. And, and that's just a, a devotion together on one of the disciplines, heart, home, or ministry is what I mean when I refer refer to the disciplines. So this morning we're going to be talking about the church in just a few moments. Um, But what I wanted to do is I wanted to spend a little bit of time with a a devotion for us regarding our homes and our care for our home. And we're going to look at that. We're just going to make some observations from Deuteronomy 6 that hopefully will be a blessing for us this morning as we ponder our care for our homes. So let's read together Deuteronomy chapter 6 and we're going to read verses 4 through 9. So Moses says this in Deuteronomy chapter 6, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. These words which I'm commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Well, what I want to do is we're going to spend a little bit of time making five observations regarding our care for our home. Five observations from Deuteronomy 6 regarding our care for our home. And you might have to go down on the the right side of your notes a little bit. Uh, I recognize we didn't give you quite enough room for five observations. Karis didn't know how many observations I was going to make. And quite frankly, when I gave her the outline, I didn't know how many observations I was going to make. So we get to learn together. So five observations regarding our care for our home. We've talked about before that where where our heart goes, our home goes. That that how how we care for our heart is directly correlated to how we care for our home. To, to think that we could neglect our heart spiritually and bring spiritual value into our home is, is really foolish, to think that we could, could skip that. And so thinking through our care for our home, number one, the first observation that we'll make, and we see this in verses four through six, is this. Number one, spiritual care for your home starts with spiritual care for your heart. Spiritual care for your home starts with spiritual care for your heart. So the first observation is spiritual care for your home starts with spiritual care for your heart. And as I said, we see this in verses four through six. Look at the call for the people of Israel. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. And here's the instruction. Here's the individual instruction for the people of God. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. These words which I'm commanding you today shall be on your heart. Direct instruction for personal heart care, directing your heart to love God with everything, to love him with your heart and with your soul and with your might. And the instruction, these words, this, this instruction that the people of God are receiving, they're to be on your heart. They're to, to permeate within your heart. You, you're to marinate. These words are just to be saturated within your heart. Then what follows? You shall teach them diligently. And before you can teach them diligently, we see here Moses addressing by giving instruction from God the, the, the importance of personal heart care, that you need to love the Lord with everything. It has to start there. It starts with spiritual care for your heart before you can step into your home. You cannot effectively teach your family diligently the precepts of the Lord, the instruction of the Lord. You can't teach them to love God if you fail to love God. Could you imagine being at the dinner table? And let's say you're having my favorite food ever, Brussels sprouts. And you tell your child, you need to eat your 
your vegetables. And your child goes, but you haven't had any. Yeah, I don't like them. <laughs> but you need to eat them. I mean, it's just the hypocritical nature there. Unless you're allergic, then you have like an easy out, which would be awesome. So uh, the, the hypocrisy there to, to tell your children to fear the Lord, to teach your children God's commandments, and yet for you to have a blatant disregard for it, it's not God's intention. So spiritual care for your home starts with spiritual care for your heart. What's the next observation? Number two, my intentional pursuit of the Lord, my intentional pursuit of the Lord and love for him should extend into my home. My intentional pursuit of the Lord and love for him should extend into my home. So first of all, Spiritual care for your home starts with spiritual care for your heart. But not only that, you're actually called to bring your love for the Lord into your home. Your intentional pursuit, my intentional pursuit of the Lord and love for him should extend into my home. Your love for the Lord should not be a compartmentalized part of your life that you have your quiet time and that's for you and the Lord. And then you just go about your life as if you didn't love the Lord in your household. Your intentional pursuit of the Lord and your love for him should come out in your home. And in a very intentional way, look at verse 5 and 6 again. You shall love the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. These words which I'm commanding you today shall be on your heart you shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and so on. And so there's this connection as God is giving instruction for Israel, for the people of God in Israel, that they are to love the Lord and then they're to bring it into their home. That's the, that's the logical next step. If you truly love the Lord and you know the riches of, of having that kind of fellowship with God, of course you'd want your family to experience those same things. Of course you want your family to experience those things. What's the next observation? Number three. Number three, what is true of my heart will be true in my home. What is true of my heart will be true in my home. If you wake up grumpy and you speak harshly to your spouse or your children or whomever, they didn't draw that out of you. They didn't wake you up the wrong way or fix the coffee the wrong way or they weren't making too much noise in the morning and should have been more self-control. Otherwise, you wouldn't have had a problem. You really woke up in a gloriously joyful mood and they just thwarted that. That, that's not the reality. What's true of your heart in that moment is coming out. And that's inevitable. What's true of your heart will come out. That's why these commandments should be on our hearts. And if they are truly on our hearts, they will come out. And so this is a good indicator. If you never speak with those in your home about wanting to honor the Lord in your conduct, that should be a sobering indicator that you're not uh, at a heart level thinking about honoring the Lord with your conduct. <laughs> it, it will come out. It's inevitable. The things that are on our heart come out from us. So what is true of my heart will be true in my home. And this is a sobering call for us to be intentional, to see the importance of intentional heart care, to meet with the Lord, to get up earlier if we must, to be okay with 15 30 minutes of cartoons in the morning because the kids woke up earlier or whatever the situation is. We should be okay with whatever it takes, whether it's going to bed early, getting up earlier, whatever, to shepherd our hearts, to care for our hearts intentionally, to set our hearts where they should be. So what's true of my heart will be true of my home. Number four, leading your home requires diligence. Leading your home Now, uh, leading your home requires diligence. You women are not the leaders of your home. 
That's not the role that God has for you. Yet you are leaders in your home of what is right. You are to be exemplary. So while you're not called to lead your home, you are called to be exemplary in your home. And that requires diligence. And you're called to shepherding your children. And you're called to obey God's word in regards to your respect and submission to your husband and love for him if you're married. So leading your home requires diligence. You, you don't get off the hook. Well, I'm not the leader, so I don't need to be diligent. Actually, you need to serve others diligently in your home. And so we see that in the first half of verse 7. You shall teach them diligently to your sons. Here's the instruction for the men of Israel to set the tone spiritually within their homes. And this is actually a, a helpful reminder. When you see commands for men on what they're to do in their homes, that is a great opportunity as if you're married as a helper to your husband to go, this is what my husband is called to. I want to pray for him in regards to this. I want to support him and encourage him. How can I make sure he has time with the Lord? And, and, and I'm sure this has never happened to any of you. Never once. Highly doubt it. Where you had a conversation that went something like, I got up with the kids all this week. Can you get up with them tomorrow? That may be a very reasonable request. However, make sure you're considering, how am I enabling my husband to meet with the Lord so that he can bring grounded, mature, spiritual influence into our home? Sometimes your husband will need to get up with the kids. He should do that. And you have an opportunity to meet with the Lord. And sometimes you need to fight selfishness in your own heart that would say, I want what I want right now, and I'm going to demand that of my husband. And it's actually not helping him in his spiritual leadership of the home. And so I'm not saying you always have to get up early and your husband always gets to sleep in. That's not the point. The point is, think through, how can I be a helper for my husband to be able to provide positive spiritual influence in the home, knowing that that has to start with his own heart care. Any questions about that? Excellent. All right, number five, lastly. The last observation is this, pointing your family to the Lord, pointing your family to the Lord is comprehensive, not compartmentalized. Pointing your family to the Lord is comprehensive, not compartmentalized. And we see that in verses 7 through 9 where we have this ex explanation. And I won't, I won't go into all the details of it for the sake of time. But you get the point of what Moses is going after here. You shall teach them diligently to your sons, shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand. They shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Here we see that the spiritual care and the directing towards Yahweh is not something that is confined to a 30-minute window once a week or every other evening or every, every evening. But the, the intentional care for your home towards the Lord is something that's just to be what you're about. And it doesn't matter if you're driving to the store, if you're uh, at home, if you're going to the park, but the kinds of things that you talk about, the kinds of things that are on your mind, the kinds of things that you're sensitive to as you navigate life's various issues are, the, are things of the Lord, is the Lord himself. And so it's not your spiritual care for your home is not summed up in, I have a 30-minute quiet time, I have family devotions for 15 minutes, I'm shepherding my home. Excellent. Those may be incredibly helpful tools to shepherd your home and things that most likely shouldn't be neglected. And yet, that's not all of it. What we love about the Lord and what we love about pursuing him and honoring him and obeying him, that should just come out in all areas of our life. It shouldn't be compartmentalized to certain segments and then void in other areas. Any questions, comments on that?
the Lord's instruction for us is truly sweet. When we are walking in these things, it is, uh, it is such a joy and such a gift from the Lord to, to be able to do what is righteous and to be able to have fellowship and a relationship with him. And if you feel like, oh, I don't do any of these the, ways, the way that, that I wish I could, there's grace and it's a process of growing and, and maturing in the Lord and, and growing in these disciplines. All right, we're going to shift gears. You don't need to change any pages on your notes, but we're going to talk about the church. The church is referred to as ecclesiology. That's the theological term to summarize the study of the church. And that word ecclesiology comes from the Greek word that we find in the New Testament, ekklesia. Ekklesia. Ek is from, is from, so from is ek. And kaleo is called out ones. So it's from called out ones is the most literal translation. Ecclesia, from called out ones. Prior to being used in reference to the church, the, 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 the spiritual church, the church of God, it was used to reference an assembly, just a gathering. Ones that were called out for a specific purpose who would come together. So ones who would join together who were called out for a specific purpose. Now, it's important that we understand what we mean when we talk about the church. The church most certainly is an assembly. It most certainly is an assembly. But you have two categories of church in the New Testament. There's the the church universal and the church local. Now, within the New Testament, there are 120 occurrences of the church or ecclesia in some form. The word church occurs 120 times. Only 15 to 17 of these, depending on the passage and kind of what what you take that passage as, refer to the church universal. 103 to 105 refer to specific local churches. And even the universal references are used by analogy to a local assembly, a, a gathering or a group or a people, something along those lines. If you were to define the universal church, you, you may define it this way. The church or assembly of believers, as it refers to the universal church, is all believers spiritually united in Christ, scattered or ga- gathered. So what is the church universal? All believers spiritually united in Christ, scattered or gathered. Turn to Colossians 1, and we're going to jump around a little bit this morning. Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1 verse 18, we see a reference to the church as universal. So this this reality that Paul puts forth about Christ in relation to the church is true for Christ globally over all believers. He says this, he is also head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. So there you have this, this picture of Christ. He, Christ, is also head of the body, the church. Paul is not referencing Christ as the head only of the church in Colossae. But where it gets a little bit fuzzy or, or just where, where you have to use some discretion is he's not talking about Christ as the head of only the universal church and as if he wasn't the head of the church in Colossae or he wasn't the head of the church in Philippi. So he is both the head of those churches, but he's head of the churches as a whole. So it's not, we look to Christ as the head of Gilbert Bible Church. Tom said is not the head. I certainly am not the head. Don't ever let that even be close. Um, Christ is the head of Gilbert Bible Church. Every true church, Christ is the head of that church. And so there we see a, an expression where, where Christ is uh, depicted as being the head of the, of the church at large. And yet that reality is true for the local church as well. Turn to 1 Thessalonians 1. First Thessalonians 
chapter 1, verse 1. Paul says this, Paul and Silvanus and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God, the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. Here we see a reference to a specific local church, a specific local church, the church local. And as we think about how church is used in regards to the local church, it is a local assembly of believers united together, and there's actually form and instruction and leadership within that. What we don't find is ever a reference in the New Testament in regards to ecclesia as the church being a building, a denomination, or a state church, or anything of those lines. The local church is a group of believers intentionally joined together under Christ's rule for Christ's purposes. And that's the local church. The church is the elect of God joined together in a local assembly as it pertains to the local church. And we see this expressed through various terms. And you have those. uh, Actually, we're not there yet. You don't have these in your notes, but I'll read them off. The church is the elect of God. Saints, the faithful, believers, disciples, Christians, brethren. Those are some of the references in regards to the the church and what it's made up of. The church is not a location. The church is not a building. The church is not a denomination. The church is, is not part of the state to govern and rule in that regards. The church is the elect of God, joined together in a local assembly of believers. And by assembly, we just mean group of people connected closely and regularly. And God has instruction for that. He also has pictures of the church, things that he has used to describe what the church is to be about. And you have them there in your outline. The body, the body of Christ, a a building, that we're a building. And there he's not saying you're in a building or the church is the building. We are the building, us being fitted together and Christ is the cornerstone. As the people of God joined in the local assembly, referred to as the temple, as the bride, as a flock, as vine and branches. Now, as we ponder more about the church and we consider what the church is, we need to look at the beginning of the church, the inception of the church. The church was not always a thing. Israel was not the church. And the church is not Israel. The church is a distinct group of believers during this age that God has established. Prior to the church, you had the people of God expressed through Israelite, the Jews or proselyte Jews, people who were converted to Judaism. And then the whole mystery that was so impactful was that salvation was now available to Gentiles and Jews. You didn't have to become a Jew to become the people of God. And so God established the church, which consists now of both Jews and Gentiles. And so if you were to have circles talking about categories, if you had one big circle called the people of God, you might have a category in there with Jews. And then you might have another circle, which would be the church. Those overlap only where you have New Testament Jews or post-Christ ascension Jews who are now part of the church and they're still Jewish. And all of them are under the umbrella of people of God. And there's more circles yet to come. Tribulation saints, millennial kingdom saints, and so on. So, We don't need to get into all of that, but it's exciting and it's very sweet, the Lord's providential care for his people. The inception of the church. Uh, You see Christ referencing the church as he tells Peter, upon this rock, I will build my church. You are Peter, and upon this rock, I will build my church. You also see him indicating the coming of the church in his instruction for how to care for those who are in unrepentant sin. And you go to your brother, and then if they don't 
repent. If you haven't won them, you bring two or three witnesses. And then if they still don't repent, then you tell it to the church. Well, at, at that point, they didn't have the local church yet established. You, Jesus was essentially saying, tell, them, tell it to the assembly, to the gathering. And, and as time went on, it would be even more clear the formality of what that would look like. And Paul expounds on that in his letters, how to care spiritually for people. But it's amazing how incredibly clear and precise Jesus was in his instruction for the church and how specific he was with the words that he used knowing what was to come. The church, while it was foretold through Christ, he, he was alluding to it. He was talking about how it was going to be there soon, and there was still confusion on what that would look like. By the time you get to Acts 2, after the ascension of Christ, it's no longer confusing. It's here. The inception of the church takes place. And while there's still much to learn and much confusion, the church itself is not confusing. God's plan was not confusing, and so there's specific instruction given for how the church is to conduct itself, what they're to be about, what they're to do. Ephesians 2.20 is a great expression of Christ as the cornerstone in the establishment of the church, which is being founded as both Jews and Gentiles come together in one. And the, the dividing wall, the barrier, the enmity that was between man and God and between man and one another, even between Jews and Gentiles, is just, just demolished. It's, it's, it's broken down, is the word from Scripture, as this beautiful joining together of men and women under God's grace is established within the local church. So you have the inception of the local church, and then we start to look at the task of the local church. What is the church to be about? And we have some early examples. Before we were officially, officially launched as Gilbert Bible Church, we were meeting together for fellowship gatherings, uh, and we had a, a couple times where we met at the, the um, clubhouse at, what was it? Agritopia, thank you. Um, the clubhouse in Agritopia. And uh, we went through Acts 2.41 and looked at what the early church was about. What, out of all the things they could have done at the inception of the early church, what did they commit themselves to? And it was teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayer. And we went through those and, and broke those down together in a lesson that's available probably not on our website, but somewhere if you haven't listened to that. Is it on the website? Did we get that one? Because I know it was the handheld recorder before we had our website. We emailed it out. It might be on our website. If you desire to listen to that, if you, if you didn't um, hear it, let me know and we can track that down. They gathered together. There was uh, intentional teaching around God's word. There was intentional fellowship, spiritual care for one another, breaking of bread. Uh, they were taking the Lord's table together, and there was prayer. In Acts eleven nineteen through 30, we see that they were gathering regularly. There was preaching. There was teaching. There was encouragement. There was giving, generous giving. There was the sending out for further gospel ministry from amongst themselves. And while we see those as examples of what took place in the early church, we actually see a, a beautiful expression of care from God for us given in the pastoral epistles, and particularly 1 Timothy. Turn to 1 Timothy 3. First Timothy 3, verses 14 and 15. This is so helpful to see. Paul tells Timothy this, and in First Timothy 3, verse 14 and 15, I'm writing these things, and that these things is this book. I'm writing what's in this book to you, hoping to come to you before long, but in case I am delayed, I write so that you will know you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God. Is that the universal church, the household of God? No, what do we see? In the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. This is instruction for us to know as 
one another, join together in the local church how we are to conduct ourselves. This is so helpful because, listen, there are so many things that a church could be about. And many of those things we have the freedom to be about. There are things that we must know that we must be about. And that's where we want to start. And I think where churches can get into to precarious circumstances or situations as a church body is when they give uh, exorbitant amount of attention to permissible things that they could be about at the expense of what we know from God's word that we must be about. And we want to do the opposite. We don't want to fall into that pitfall. We want to make sure that we are being diligent with what we know we are to be about. And then from there, as we have freedoms and as we do those things well, there may be things that we're about in addition. Maybe and maybe not. But what we can never compromise on is what God says we must be about. So what must we be about? Right now I'm on the pastoral epistles part of your outline. So if you see pastoral epistles and then in brackets, 1 Timothy 3, 14 and 15, and then you just have a list there. This is what the church must be about. How do we conduct ourselves in the household of God? Protect God's people from false teaching. Pray for government leaders. Instruct women. Read the word publicly. Exhort and teach. Confront sin. Care for widows. Ordain some for service. Instruct slaves. Instruct the rich. Cling to the truth and faith and love in Christ. Disciple men. Rehearse the gospel. Teach holy living. Refute and correct false teaching. Sniff out wolves. Prepare God's people for persecution. Continue to teach, reprove, correct, and train with the word. Preach the word. Do the work of evangelism. Appoint qualified leadership. Silence rebellious men and false teachers. Speak sound doctrine. Instruct men and women. Encourage godly living. Avoid foolish controversies. Reject factious people. Encourage God's people to meet pressing needs. And just for clarification on that last one, encourage God's people to meet pressing needs. Those are pressing needs among the body. That's not a call to go meet every pressing need we see in the world. We are called to do good as we can. And yet the instruction here is to meet pressing needs in the body. And sometimes that can be a, that can, just for the sake of conscience, um, so that we don't feel every pressing need everywhere we're called to meet. Actually, our first obligation is to meet the pressing needs one with another in the local church. That's where it starts. Any questions about that? Comments? Okay. You guys are a little too easy here. You gotta, yes, thank you. Yes, good. So, uh, Caring for Orphans and Widows is from James 1, and these are the pastoral epistles where there actually is really specific instruction on who qualifies as a woman indeed, and who, or a widow indeed, rather, and who isn't in that qualification, and what are the nuances there on the church's obligation to care for widows. The church is never, as the church, mandated to care for orphans. But there is a spiritual care for widows. However, that doesn't take anything away from what James is getting after in chapter 1, that these people of greatest need and greatest neglect, the heart of the believer should be to care for them and provide for them. So when he talks about true and undefiled religion is looking after widows and orphans in distress, it was those in the culture who were most most compromised, most susceptible, most vulnerable, you should have a heart to give of yourself for care for them, for those who have nothing that they can give to you, really, in that moment. You're doing it out of Christ-like self-sacrificial love. And that's something that believers are called to have a disposition of an uh, awareness outside of yourselves to give of yourselves for the care of others. It's not a command to adopt, um, but to have that disposition. So the church should be mindful of those things and should support believers' care, um, but the church is not mandated by God to be an orphanage. Good question, really good question, because that's where some of these things, 
and, and we'll talk about that. Some of these things, believers have individual um, freedoms to pursue that are really good. Social reform, um, food kitchens, caring for the homeless, uh, adoption or um, other means of care for those who need it. And, uh, and yet those aren't what the church is called to do. But when you talk about equipping the saints for the work of ministry among one another and equipping the saints to grow in maturity so that you can live good, holy, godly lives, you're equipping as the church believers to have the right heart, the right mindset, um, connected with one another for maturing to be able to function in our world in a way that's pleasing to the Lord. And there's lots of freedoms in how that manifests itself. Yeah, really good. That is a really good question. I'm glad you asked that. Any other questions or thoughts? Okay. Next section, we're on the one another's. And you see that on page three. The page numbers are a little hard to see. We might need to bolden that up just a tad. You need like a, you need a black light to see the page numbers. Exodus, just joking. Uh, the one another's. So we have instruction for what the church is to be about as a whole, the kinds of things that we're to concern ourselves, but we also have specific instruction for what Christians are to be about with each other. And so when we think through what we're about as a church, what kinds of ministries do we have? How do they fit within those things that we just talked about? And then when we think about what is our obligation and our conduct within those ministries that the church is to be about, we see the one another commands. And I won't read them all there, but it's just an incredibly sweet list that when you think about, I mean, just think about how we benefit being connected to one another when these things are taking place. Taking place, And if we all just continue to mature in these things, how much sweeter, all the more sweeter it would be. And I do want to make one comment, though. These one another commands that we find in Scripture are not a grocery store where you kind of pull off the shelf which ones you like. We're called to do all of these things. So it's not like, you know, I'm, I'm the hospitality person. And listen, you may have the gift of hospitality, and you should use that. But that doesn't get you off the hook from being at peace with others or showing love towards others or comforting one another or not complaining against one another. So this list is not a pick and choose which ones you like, although there might be ones that come more naturally or come more regularly for you as you exercise spiritual giftedness in certain areas. And yet we're called to do all of these things. This is how we're to conduct ourselves with one another. And I have a quote there for you at the bottom of that list. So if you turn your page one, actually two over, on the bottom of page five, and this is from Smedley. Smedley Yates says this, the New Testament knows nothing of a lone ranger Christian. Christians have been placed by God into the body, the building, the church universal, and that placement is intended by God to be manifest in a local body of believers. And there what Smed is getting at is really that there's just no independent living as a Christian. He, he, God places every church under his care in the church universal, and that placement, being part of the universal church, is to be manifest through your commitment and association with a local church. To neglect a local church and say, I'm just part of the universal church, actually misses God's divine wisdom and care for his people through the local church. And if you think, yeah, but you know what? I've gone without church and I'm really fine without it. That's a lie. <laughs> you're not. You might think you are. You're self-deceived because you're disobedient. And so we are called to be part of a local church. And we're called to be connected with one another in intentional care. That can come with a number of challenges and difficulties. We'll talk about, if we have time a little bit later, navigating the hurt that can come within the church and how you have to trust God's providential, imperfect means, God's perfect plan using imperfect means. The structure of the church. 
well, within the church, God has given us specific instruction. There's two offices. There's the office of elder and the office of deacon. Both of these is to be held by men. Some churches hold that there are deacons and deaconesses, and the the passages that the passage that predominantly talks about that. There's um, some some really godly debate on both sides of that. From the best that we can understand, the office for deacon and even the first expression of deacons in Acts six, the prototype deacons are men and that they're providing spiritual leadership and care for practical needs within the church in order to free up men, or the elders rather, to um, commit themselves to the word and prayer, shepherding care for the church. And so we hold to male deacons that are appointed for a specific task. So you have a deacon over this task. What that means is that just because a man is qualified as a deacon, he may or may not be a deacon. That's contingent upon whether there's a need for the task. And if he's appointed as a deacon for a specific task and that task comes to an end, well, then we would either determine, is there another task that's appropriate for that man? Or he would no longer be a deacon for whatever season that is, not out of disqualification, but usually because he was so qualified to handle the task, he did it well, and now it's passed. And so we view task as a, as a role for meeting specific needs and those can kind of ebb and flow depending on the, the nature of the role in the church. And then you have elders whose responsibility is to shepherd the flock. You also have the, the church body, and it's composed of members, those who are joined intentionally together with one another. Now, it's important to recognize that all sheep are to submit to the leadership of the church. But a, a, a distinction within that is that Elders are sheep too. And so there's not a, there's not a hierarchy in these, in these offices of uh, the body submits to the elders and the elders only submit to God. The elders absolutely submit to God, but the elders actually submit to one another. And there's an element where I am an elder at Gilbert Bible Church, but Tom is my elder and Tyler is my elder in turn. And Lord willing, you know, early next year will be my elder as well. Um, and and th that's a protection both for the elders to be under that authority and for the church that their elders are under authority as well, under God's providential authority within the leadership of the church. So that's how we function as, a, as an elder board. That's how we function at Grace Bible Church. Before, it was, uh, there was 11 men who were elders, and those 10 other men were my elders, and even my ministry was submitted unto their discretion. And so I didn't say, hey, guys, I'm doing this. Just want you to be aware. The Lord, the Lord led me. I'm going to go do this ministry. No. Hey, guys, I, I think this would really bless the church. What do you think about this ministry? 414. What do you guys think about that? Um, oh, yeah, guys, that would, that would be great. Hey, hey men, um, we've talked about planning a church for 15 years. I think we should do it. I don't have to be the guy, but I'd love to if you would want to send me and a contingency from our church and any other elders that you think would be appropriate to go. Um, and then every elder, yes. And we all had to agree. We all had to, to agree to do that. Any questions on the structure of the church? Additional instructions for the church. We'll look at this in a, in a whole lesson in the future. Uh, it's, a, it's a ways out, but we, we will get there eventually. And that's Jesus' instruction regarding care for those in unrepentant sin. We also see instruction regarding church ordinances, baptism, and communion. And so both of these are, are symbolic. You are baptized to represent outwardly the internal change that has taken place. And we part, partake in the Lord's table or communion uh, as a remembrance of Christ and the body and the, um, or the bread and the cup represent the body and the blood. They're symbols to point to that. The, sometimes an ordinance that there's question about is feet washing. Has anybody ever participated in feet washing? Um, so that comes from Jesus washing the disciples' feet and saying, as I have done for you, you do likewise. Okay, the, the explanation that I've heard that differentiates that 
from communion and baptism is that you both see communion and baptism instructed elsewhere in the New Testament and practiced, and you don't see specific instruction for feet washing or a regular practice of that elsewhere in scripture. And so um, as Jesus is, is caring for the disciples, it's pretty clear that it was understood that, that, that what he was getting at was a disposition of humility and care instructed towards his disciples in their interaction with one another um, and not a mandate for the church to carry out that practice. I've been a part of a church where they did that. They felt that there was a benefit to doing that and the humility and, and uh, it was a little awkward and uncomfortable and humbling and probably accomplished all the things that they were hoping it would in that, which was, which was fine. So I think there's a permissibility to do that, but there's not a mandate for us to do that. And then you see the exercising of spiritual gifts. Uh, the church is called to use their gifts for the edification of the body. Well, as we wrap up, a couple just last thoughts, things to ponder. Um, explicit instruction in scripture versus individual freedoms. And we already talked about that a little bit, but it's good to just ponder whenever we're navigating various things to think through, I'm passionate about this. I think I have a, I think I have a freedom to be passionate about this and I need to be gracious where others don't share the same passion. Anti-abortion. All of us should be passionately opposed to the murder of infants. How you passionately oppose that, there's a lot of freedom. And so to say, here's how I express my passionate opposition, I stand with signs outside of the abortion clinic. You must not be passionate about it. You must not be really against it because you're not standing out here with me. Well, that, that's not how we want to conduct ourselves. Or to say the church should organize this. Well, what does scripture say the church must do? Those, so there's a, an element of just pondering these things so that we're sensible in our thinking about what the church must be about and what we have the freedom to be about. And even as we're seeking to maintain unity in the bond of peace without the body, not holding things that we're passionate about in a manner um, if they're a, a, an element of freedom that we're trying to manipulate or guilt others into sharing our passion. It's okay to have those passions, um, but, uh, but we need to hold them appropriately. The church in missions, when we think about the church at large being about a local assembly of the building up of the flock, this should radically impact and does impact how we think about missions as a church and what we apply ourselves to as a church. Uh, again, going to Mexico and building shelters is not a bad thing to do. And we may have the freedom to do that. However, when we think about the stewardship of God's funds within the local church, what are we to be about? We want to see not only people verbally profess faith in Christ, but be built up in Christ and see churches established in those places. So a get in, get out, share the gospel, let things fall where they may, is just not an approach that we're that we're passionate about. We want to see the gospel proclaimed, see men and women discipled, and see churches established. Uh, how do you define a good church? We're not going to dive into that, but really you should look at those things that God says the church must be about, and how are they doing up and against that. Not that any church does all of those things perfectly, uh, but if a church is about a bunch of things other than that, and those things are nowhere to be found, that should be a warning sign. And then lastly, trusting God's perfect wisdom and imperfect means. Do I love the church as I must? Christ died for his bride when, as Romans 5 says, we were godless, helpless sinners. Christ still loved the church to the point that he would give of himself and all that 1 Peter 2, 21 through 25 talks about, reviled, scorned, mocked, scourged, crucified, kept entrusting himself to the one who judges righteously. And yet the temptation is the moment we're sinned against or hurt deeply, the church is in a safe place. The church is in a good place. I need something other than the church. There are certainly reasons to leave a church. 
being sinned against, just being sinned against is not one of them. Okay, that's going to happen. If it hasn't happened at Gilbert Bible Church, it's going to happen soon. We just, we're close. We're going to sin against each other, and we need to trust God using imperfect means uh, in his perfect wisdom. And listen, uh, Tom and myself and Tyler and Sam and Kenny, the leadership of this church, we are imperfect. We're just, we're going to fail you in some way. We're going to make a decision that wasn't as thought out as it should have been. We'll be slower when we should have been faster. We'll be faster when we should have been slower. We're, we're just, we're just not going to get it right every time. Pray for us. <laughs> be patient with us. Encourage us. And so we need to navigate hurt and difficulty and think through, you know, how, how do we forgive? How, how do we maintain a love for Christ's bride even when it hurts? Well, we need to fix our eyes on Jesus. He's the perfect example of this. We're going to end there. There's some questions. How do I think through various concerns? I'll leave it up to you. Um, happy to talk through any of those things. Uh, offline, if you have questions, if you want to talk about that in a discussion group or ponder that with each other afterwards, those are more questions just in light of these things. How do we navigate thoughts like, man, I'm just not getting anything out of this ministry? Or, listen, I, I like the church, but no one ever reaches out to me. Or, the church just isn't really meeting my needs. And that you could add probably a hundred more questions. Music's too loud, music's too quiet. Worship center's too cold, worship center's too hot, Josh is too boring, Josh goes too long, Josh goes too short. <laughs> Nobody ever said. Okay. All right, let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your divine wisdom in the church. And again, just pondering the extent of Christ's love for his bride that would lead him to a cross so that he might draw, yes, individuals, but for the purpose of them being joined together in a local assembly as the church, which is his bride. Lord, I pray that we would share that same love. And even as we ponder these things about what the church is to be about and what we're called to do and how you established her, Lord, I pray that what would be most on our hearts is, is simply awe for your love for us and a response that would lead us to love one another and love you and uh, recognize the, the joy and privilege that it is to be a part of your church, even in all her shortcomings. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.